listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit www.jointheventure.com. So living in Wilmington is pretty awesome, isn't it? I mean, when you meet people who are like, this is where you live? And that, and that, you get that reaction a lot? I know that I do. And it's awesome for a lot of reasons. We've got the beaches. They're beautiful. We've got, it's a really great place to live if you've got family because there's always stuff to do. The city does a good job of planning stuff. Uh, there, there's the awesome, like, historic downtown area. There's so much history. But the thing, like I mentioned a little earlier, the thing that I think people who don't live in Wilmington might hear about Wilmington is about the film industry. You ever get that from people way out of town? Like, I heard this and this happened from Wilmington. And, and maybe, uh, maybe that's true, or maybe we just want to believe that. I don't know. But the, the film industry is huge here, and there's so much going on. I do a lot of my, my weekly work when I, I don't have an office space because we're a brand-new church. And if you haven't noticed, we meet in a gymnasium at the YMCA. And so I don't also have an office, but I meet out of coffee houses all over town. And I do a lot of my meetings and stuff uh, right here at the Port City Java uh, Free, shameless endorsement for Port City Coffee. It's, coffee is awesome. Um, they're on Market Street. And, and when I'm in there, I meet a lot of people involved in the film industry. People involved uh, with some sort of staging stuff or some sort of like locations, arrangements, or, or maybe even people who are, are more involved with some of the actors and actresses or script writing. Uh, there's a lot of aspiring young filmmakers. And it's cool just to see that hub of stuff happening. And the thing is, film is all about stories. And I've said it before from this stage, and I'll say it many times, I love stories. I love great stories. I'm a reader. Uh, I don't know if, if you uh, are much of a reader, but I'm a reader. I love to read great stories, especially stuff that's like science fiction or fantasy or like high adventure, or something that's just going to keep me on the edge of my seat. And uh, I don't know if you do this, but I do this. Like when I'm reading uh, a good book, a good story, I begin to make a movie in my head. You ever do that? And like you start to like imagine what the different characters st- sound like. And for me, because I'm a little bit adult ADHD, I have to actually assign a, a human being face to that character. So a lot of times I'll go with like a, a real actor or actress and be like, this is like, this is Val Kilmer. He's like playing the role or whatever. And so I don't know why I sell Val Kilmer. I don't even know if I like him as an actor. But it's like, um, anyway. But anyway, uh, I put these people in my head because I hear their voices and it really helps me to tell the story. The Bible is full of some great stories, many of them that really should be made into movies. Uh, the, the way you read it a lot of times is pretty quick. It's like, this happened, this happened, this happened, this was the result. And you're like, oh, I want to see that. I want that to be acted out. And, and so, so many of those things have happened. And some of them have been made into movies. Some of them have been great movies. Some of them have been terrible movies. And I wouldn't spend a dime to go watch them because movies should be art. You shouldn't feel like spiritual remorse because you don't want to go watch a Christian movie. If it's not a good movie, don't go watch it. It's okay. But when I look at these movies, these, these stories from the Bible, I think they make great movies. And one of those stories would definitely be the story of Esther. Now, Esther has been made into several movies in different formats. But I was wanting to teach through what Esther is all about and tell her story. And I thought maybe the best way to do that would be if we tried to treat it like it were a movie script. And though we just did the cool, like, it was, it was awesome. These guys who did this skit, you guys did great. Can we give them a hand? That was funny. Um, Rachel, you nailed it. So uh, no pressure, but you got to do that two more times. But, <laughs> but they did a great job. And I wish we could just put all of the great stories of the Bible into a movie. But as I teach you the story of Esther, what I want to do over the next three weeks is kind of tell it as if I was pitching you this, the, 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 the screenplay uh, for a good movie. Like, this is the script. This is the setting. Imagine the characters. This is what it could look like. This is how the story would go. And so what we want to do, starting right now, is we're going to tell the story of Esther. 
we begin our awesome story in this incredible palace. Just picture it. The most beautiful palace you've ever been in or seen on TV or in a movie or seen pictures of. It's beautiful. And the setting in this palace is a party. Now, where we are in history is an ancient Persia. I want to give you a map. Uh, I apologize, it's a little bit uh, pixelated, but th- this is ancient Persia. It actually reached um, as far west, as, uh, as, far west as, as northern Africa to Ethiopia and as far east as India. I mean, that was a huge region, and these guys were the big boys on campus in that time in history. Um, and so you've got this, this huge place, and it is run by a guy named Xerxes. Xerxes is the king, okay? If you remember anything from uh, ancient history, we're going to be right around that time, around Xerxes. And in this movie that we're going to make, I wanted to cast actual actors for the different roles. And so I played around with different people that could probably be Xerxes. Like I thought about the dude who played Gandalf. That would be pretty cool. And then also, I really like Patrick Stewart. Uh, If you don't know him from Star Trek, you might also know he's pretty busy making a lot of money with X-Men right now as Professor Xavier. So he wasn't free. So we had someone's agent call us, actually the great... Samuel L. Jackson. So Samuel L. Jackson is going to be playing the role of Xerxes, and so just, just imagine him when I talk about Xerxes. That's who you want to see, okay? And he's got this awesome voice, and that's Samuel L. Jackson. All right, so this King Xerxes, King Samuel L. Jackson, he's a party animal, and he's in this amazing palace, and he's throwing this party, and the book of Esther opens up with this party. Let me tell you a little bit about this party. We read about it in Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 4. This is what it says. This party lasted for a full 180 days. Consume that thought for a moment. Okay, I just said it, but think about it. What does a party that's 180 days long look like? You ever been to like a kid's birthday party that went about an hour and a half too long? Yeah. This is 180 days. I have no idea what you do for 180 days. That's six months. That's half a year. And so they've got this amazing party, and um, and, and it goes on and on. And, And Seriously, after a 180-day party, you would think that King Samuel L. Jackson was done. Like, he's like, I'm done, I'm good, I've had enough to drink. We also know that he drinks like a fish. Okay, that's kind of what we know about King Xerxes. What do you do after a long party? Maybe you've been to a couple all-nighters. Like, what do you do? You crash, dude. You're out. After a 180-day party, I'm out easily for like eight or nine weeks. Like, that's how long I'm sleeping after that party. But what does King Xerxes do? Well, he throws another party. He throws another party, a seven-day party. Check out verse 7 and 8 of chapter 1. It says, at this second party, wine was served in goblets of gold. Each one had different from the other. That's, that's impressive. Everybody at the party had their own golden goblet. The royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, this was an edict from the king, each guest was to be allowed to drink in his own way. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man as he wished this is a crazy party. Like, I, it's, I think it's crazy. Each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. Like, I mean, I don't want you to picture, like, they're like monkeys, and I'm going to drink with my feet, and I'm going to drink hanging upside down. No, they're like, this is open bar, open tab. Drink what you want. Mixed drinks. We got, we got like, cocktails. We got, we got the hard liquor stuff. We got fine wines. This is 100 years old. Like, whatever you want, as much as you want. Now, I don't know if, you, if you've ever been involved in a party where there's alcohol, but generally, it's a bad idea when you don't cut people off, Okay? It's just a bad idea. And these guys have already been going for 180 days, and now they're going to go for seven more days. And so that sets up our, our king. 
our King Samuel L. Jackson. All right, are you with me? So that, that's the setting. You're, still, you're ready for this movie? So it's getting ready here. All right, now I want to introduce a new character. So, so Xerxes, he's in this elevated state of uh, enlightenment, shall we say. And, and he decides he's going to make a big decision. Now, imagine this. A drunken man beginning to think about a woman. I don't know if you've ever like, known anyone who's experienced that, but that's what happens with King Xerxes. He begins to think about his wife, King, Queen Vashti. Uh, Queen Vashti, uh, we don't know a whole lot about her, but this is what I, I kind of do understand about the culture as you study it. Uh, this 187-day party, it was an all-man affair. Like back in the day, you didn't have like co-ed parties. It's like the men would have their thing. And simultaneously, the women were having their own party, and so Queen Vashti showing, throwing her own party. And at this juncture in history... King Xerxes makes a terrible decision. I don't know if anyone can relate in this room, but maybe you've known someone who's made a poor decision while under the influence of alcohol. And this is what he says. Esther chapter 1, verse 10. He says, it says, On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, a bunch of weird names, I won't say them, to bring before him Queen Vashti. I want to see my queen wearing her crown in order to display her beauty. To the peoples and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. On the one hand, you might think, well, that's sweet. That, that's not what he had in mind. He wasn't being like, this is my lovely wife, Vashti. Okay, go, go have fun with the ladies. No, odds are he had something much more crude in mind. And so he probably wants to show her off, say some kind of trophy wife, and probably get her to do some kind of lewd dance for, her, for her, his friends. That's just kind of the culture that had going on here. And so drunken Samuel L. Jackson says, get my wife, and he probably planned on her doing something inappropriate. And Now we introduce the new character to our movie. The, the part of Queen Vashti was a little tricky to fill. Uh, there were a lot of actresses that were interested in the part. We put out a lot of notes, and, and we, got, we got a lot of response back. Uh, for example, we really wanted Julia Roberts, but she's really expensive, so we couldn't afford her. But we, we found this one girl we thought would be perfect. She's actually already served in a role kind of like this. Um, maybe you remember Natalie Portman, and, and this, this is what I imagined her looking like as as Queen Vashti. So this is when Natalie Portman was uh, Queen Amidala in, uh, in Star Wars. But So there we go. So we got, this is Queen Vashti. And so King Samuel L. Jackson calls into Queen Natalie Portman and says, hey, come in here. I want to show you off to my buddies. What you need to know about Queen Vashti is this. She's a little fire, firecracker. She's not someone who's just going to lay down and take whatever somebody throws at her. She's going she's gonna to push back. And we see that in her very short but very direct response to her husband in verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command... Queen Vashti refused to come. And all the ladies said, yeah, that's right. That's right. You don't go near that slime ball man. Right? But this is his reaction, the second half of verse 12. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. First of all, she did the right thing. She, she knew what she was getting into. And she was like, no, I'm not going to do that for you. The problem is he was the most powerful man in the world. And he was not accustomed to being told no. And so he gets pretty flustered, and so he gathers together all his, his lawyer buddies, his, 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 his advisors, and in verse 15 we read what he does. He asks them, he says, okay, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She hasn't obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the units had taken her. I love how uh, he calls himself King Xerxes. <laughs> He's like, no one is listening to King Xerxes. King Xerxes would like another drink. King Xerxes would like to see his wife. And so verse 15 says, okay, Guys, what should we do? She has disobeyed a direct order from the king. What should we do? 
Xerxes is not a man to mess with. It doesn't matter who Vashti is. It doesn't matter that she's the queen. It doesn't matter that though he's the most powerful man in the world, that she is kind of by default the most powerful woman in the world. It doesn't matter. That's how powerful this guy is. And so do you know what his royal advisors do? They exaggerate. Have you ever had a friend that exaggerated? Like no matter what you say to them, they just take it to the next level. Man, you know what? I was talking to that guy the other day, and he kind of disrespected me. He did what? No, he didn't. I'm going to go and beat him up. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's cool. I just asked him to pass the assault. And he was like, no, thank you. And you're like, back off. But you got these friends, you know, who overreact, and this is what these do. I, they're probably overreacting because they want to brown nose with the king and get on his good side. And so this is what they say. They blow everything out of proportion in verse 17. It says, hmm, the queen's conduct will become known to all women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, well, King Xerxes commands Queen Vashti be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persians and the medium women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end to disrespect and discord. They totally blow this out of proportion. She's like, uh, no, I don't want to go. And they're like, ah! The kingdom's falling. The kingdom's falling. Right? Cats and dogs are going to be fighting in the street. This is the end of life as we know it. We've got to punish her severely. And so the truth is, King Xerxes is really just, he's got this huge ego. And we know this from studying world history. Like you get these guys like King Xerxes and they get what they want. And really stupid things happen because they want to get what they want. And he takes a very drastic action with his queen. They convince Xerxes, who by the way didn't need much convincing, to banish Vashti from the kingdom. Guys, can you imagine that? Like, honey, uh, could, you, uh, could you grab me a Coke when you come in here? No. You are banished. <laughs> banished from my apartment. <laughs> that's a little bit extreme, but that's exactly what Xerxes does. He banishes her. And so with a quick divorce, she's gone, and the old uh, King Samuel L. Jackson is left queenless. He's a king without a queen. And that's scene one, act one. Of, is it going to be a good movie? I think it's going to be a good movie. So you, you see it? you got this, the castle, you got the, the awesome you know, setting for the party, all these people having a good time. You've got the king, and you've got the queen, and you've got this drama happening. Um, but there's one thing missing. I don't know if you caught this as I've been telling the story. This story is in, where is it? Do you know where it's written? In the Bible. That's where the story's written. So far, there's no mention of God. It's interesting. In fact, if you read the entire story of Esther, there's not. There's not any mention of God. And it kind of brings to mind the question, like, why is this story in the Bible? I thought the Bible was stories about God and God's people and, and how he leads them and teaches them. And, but if you read the story of Esther, it's not really there. In fact, there's no direct mention of God. And so you've got to ask yourself, like, is God in this story? I guess he's just not in this story. It's times like these where we have to take a step back and realize who God is. The question is, is God in this story? My answer would be, absolutely. In fact, there is no story that God's not a part of. There are some stories that he's not invited to participate in. There are some stories where he chooses to sit in a different place and conduct business in a different way. But God is definitely in this story. In fact, as I look through this, there's a poet who talks about this. And he says that sometimes it's as if God is working behind the scenes and in the shadows. In the shadows. Now you know why we're calling it this. Because this is a story where God seems absent, yet is it possible that he is indeed working behind the scenes? Maybe you have those same kind of questions in your life. 
like, God, uh, where are you? Like, I've been going to church now for a while. I'm still trying to figure out where you are. I hope that over the course of this teaching series through Esther, you can see that God indeed works behind the scenes and in the shadows. Have you ever noticed in your life when maybe God worked behind the scenes and he orchestrated some things to accomplish something bigger, something that you're not even aware of? Some of you uh, might be aware if you're friends of mine on Facebook or you just talked to me maybe in church this last two weeks. Uh, my grandmother was recently in a really bad car accident. Um, and uh, she's 84 years old. And, and uh, I want to thank all of you who have been praying for her and, and giving me kind words. It's, it's, been, it's been very encouraging. She's 84. She broke nine ribs and her sternum. Yeah, it's rough. And so she's been basically fighting for her life for like the whole last week and a half. And, and, and it's been crazy. And so that's really made me think about my grandma. We call her Nanny. And you probably have like a term of endearment for your grandmother, your grandfather. We call her nanny. And, and I really, uh, I really want to make sure that my kids, you know, know their nanny and know the story. Because she's played a really important role in my life. Um, like some things that, that, that you can know about my nanny is that she uh, was a teacher. She taught second and third grade, mostly elementary school, but I think mostly second grade, for 40 years plus at the same school. And that was incredible. And she told me the other day that she has had over 500 students. And some of them she taught three generations from the same family. It's amazing, right? And so that, that love of teaching that she has, I believe directly has been instilled in me. Because I get to teach every single week. I love to teach. I love to teach whether it's this or, or we homeschool our, our kids. And I love to get to sit with my son and help him with his math or help him with history or his English stuff. Because I just love to teach. I believe a lot of that comes directly from the influence of, of my grandmother, of my nanny. Another thing that you might not know about me, uh, some good friends of mine just found this out this week, uh, is that I'm a musician. I'm a musician. I love music. I play all kinds of instruments. I, I've, I've uh, like fronted bands and stuff. And I used to do, every week I used to do what Aaron does here every week. I used to lead worship at church every single week. And um, it's just something that, that I love. I love playing music. I love listening to music. And my nanny was a huge part of that. She was a great musician, still is. And she, she, she played violin and piano. And she was a voice instructor. And wow. And I know that influence that she's had on me. So, so that's, that's my nanny. And, and last week I spent some time telling my kids about my nanny. And I started to tell her, tell them about specifically how she met my grandfather. My, my late grandfather uh, passed away uh, several years ago. And, and it was really cool to kind of relive the stories that I've heard passed down through my family of how they met. And so uh, as I was telling this, this story, um, I was reminded a little bit about my granddad. I mean, he, he, he actually was a preacher. Um, and for my whole adult life, before I finally started preaching, I fought the idea of like doing what I'm doing right now. Like, I don't want to do this. I saw my grandfather do it. I saw some of the hard times he went through in doing that. And he preached at the same church for 48 years. Thousands of lives were impacted by him. And he was a brilliant guy. He was a genius. The guy was a reader. He was an intellectual. He taught at a college for a while. It was really cool to, to hear his story and watch, and watch how the pieces played together with him. Another thing about my grandfather is this, that he, uh, he served a, a stint in the, the uh, military during World War II in the Army. And a part of his story is this. After he got out of the Army, uh, he was working at this mill. Meanwhile, there's this guy named George. George had started a new school to train preachers. He had just a handful of students, like, like a dozen. And he said, you know what, I want to go out, I want to find some able young men who I can train to be preachers. So some of his guys are out, and they're looking for people, and they hear about a guy named Mark Woolard, who was my grandfather. And they go into this mill, and they say, Mark, what are you doing? And he said, I'm working at the mill. And he said, is this what you want to do for the rest of your life, or you want to make a big difference? And he's like, I don't know. What you got in mind? He said, I think you should go to this preaching school, learn how to be a preacher. The guy convinced him to go, and he goes. The school was called Roanoke Bible College. 
So my grandfather goes to the school. He's actually part of the, one of the very first classes of that, that college, and he graduates. And so he's on the road, and he's traveling, and he's preaching at all these little churches all throughout eastern North Carolina. And he lands at this one little church in Bath, North Carolina, and he preaches like a, a several-day revival like they used to do back in the day. And, and, and while he's there, there's this, there's this young lady in the audience, and her name is Jean. And that's my nanny. And she hears the guy preach, and she's like, I got to know this guy. And so they meet, and they end up getting married. And the rest is history. It's amazing to think the pieces that came together for, for them to meet. Why would they have ever met, but they did? Now, from that, another thing that you need to know, one last thing about my, my, my life story that I'm telling you right now, is that my dad eventually went to the Air Force. And, uh, but while he was in the Air Force, just really felt this pull to work in church. He was like, just like me. He was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to preach. It sounds crazy. He was doing his own thing. But he decides, actually, to become a preacher. And so he does. And for my dad, man, I've learned so much about making the truth and love of God relatable to people. That's something I hear a lot about venture. It's like, man, you, just, you guys just talk about the truth of God, and I understand what you're saying. And a lot of that I just got from my dad, just watching him do it day in and day out. Also, my brother is a pastor at a church up in the Outer Banks. Both of us are. And I just think about the number of lives that have been impacted by, by my dad, by my brother, by me. And there's this really cool thing. In 2012, my family and I, we moved to Wilmington. And we started a new little thing, and now it's called Venture Church. And i got to ask myself, how would the world be different if some guy didn't walk into a mill and talk to a young man about becoming a preacher? Right? Through all those years, there's been heartache, there's been hard things, and there's been times when I know that my family would be able to step back and go, I don't see where God is working in all this. But is it possible that God all along was working in the shadows to orchestrate a very specific plan that he had figured out just for you today? Blows my mind. And so when we look through the story of Esther and we say, where is God? I've got to encourage you to think about it this way. You're never alone. God is always there. And sometimes it might feel like he's a little bit absent, but that doesn't mean that he's not there. The truth is he sees the big picture and he works on a scale that we do not even comprehend. And right now around the world, there are cogs and pieces moving into place. People that you've never met, events that you've never thought about going to, opportunities that you never even imagined circumstances and situations that you couldn't dream of that are coming together because God is in control. And he's working in the shadows and behind the scenes to watch over his own. I could tell you story after story about how God has worked in my life. And I bet some of you could too. But I want to give a little bit of encouragement to those of you who might be here for the first time today or just kind of new to church. You might be like, ah, yeah, I, I kind of expected you to say stuff like that because you're like the preacher guy, so of course you would say that, because your life's probably perfect, and they're probably going to make a reality show about you and your 19 children. Um, that was a Duggars joke, if you didn't get that. My wife's reading a book about the Duggars right now. She does stuff like that. I love my wife. We had our 11th anniversary yesterday. Yeah, 11 years. Um, but I want to say something to, to you who might just be here for the first time who haven't, or ha haven't been to church very much or, or whatever to say, you know what, God is there. And, and my encouragement to you is just stick around and look for his fingerprint. Look for the signs that he says, listen to me, I'm talking to you, right? 
Like, I'm, I'm the one right here telling you God is there for you, and there are people in this room who love you and want to help you through what you're going through. And so God's got a big plan. So this is our movie. We're talking about Esther, and that was scene one, act one. The last act is, is a lot shorter today, but I want to look at scene one, act two. So, so the first part was basically, uh, it's, it's about this, this king who has a party, and then his wife tells him that he's not going to dance for his buddies, and so we banish the queen. And now we walk into the next section, and it, about four years goes by in the chapter that intervenes between chapter one and chapter two. About four years goes by. King Xerxes, uh, actually, I want to kind of rename King Xerxes sometimes. I think the problem with King Xerxes was not that he was uh, overbearing or that he had too much power. Uh, it wasn't that Vashti told him no. It was that um, King Xerxes was a jerk. That was what the problem was. In fact, I'm going to rename him King Xerxes. That's what I want to call him today. And so, like, if you need to feel like I'm being King Xerxes right now to yourself every now and then, be like, okay, I need to straighten up. So King Xerxes, Samuel L. Jackson, uh, he's had four years, and, and we find him in a situation that he's probably not in very often. He is, he is sober, <laughs> and he is single, and he's depressed. And he goes to his royal advisors, and he's like, guys, what, what can we do? we got to do something. I don't have a queen. Blah, blah, blah. Woe is me. I'm just the richest man in the world. <laughs> and so his advisors say, this is what you should do. You should hold a beauty pageant in all of Persia. And we'll get all the most beautiful women in all of Persia, and they'll prance around, and you'll pick the most beautiful woman, and she'll become your wife, and then you'll be happy again. And King Xerxes, Xerxes says, huh, that's a pretty good idea. I like that idea. Line them up, boys. All right, and so that's how the second part of the story starts. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 7. Um, there's a guy that we need to introduce. First, his name is Mordecai. And, and Mordecai is a, a Jewish man. And Mordecai, verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. The girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and feature. That's in the Bible. That seems a little provocative to me. I don't know. She was lovely in form and feature, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father died and mother died. He's a good guy. Mordecai is. He's looking out for his cousin, and he's taking care of Esther. So let's meet our first new character. First, got this guy, Mordecai. Casting for this part was natural. Uh, only one actor was considered, uh, and we called him, and he agreed. His name is Tommy Lee Jones. So this is Tommy Lee Jones, Mordecai. Um, they're working on Men in Black 4 right now, and he's got a, a little bit of time. And so he's going to be Tommy Lee Jones, Mordecai. I just think Tommy Lee Jones would make a great Mordecai. Uh, and, and he's got a beautiful younger cousin. And this was a little harder to, to match. And so I actually went through and, uh, and, and did an extensive search. Actually, I just put a, a Facebook post up, and some people commented. And this is kind of where she came from. Um, and I'm not really sure why, but uh, we selected Anne Hathaway as Esther. So there she is, Anne. And uh, she should play the role of Esther. So you've got Anne Hathaway and you've got Mordecai, and they make this decision to enter into this beauty contest. Now, here's what I want you to know about Anne Hathaway, Esther. If you were going to pick someone to be a prominent player in a very important part of world history, Esther would not be the person, okay? What I've found is that God specializes in using messed up people and unlikely people for his purposes. I've said that so many times. That's, that's his specialty. He's like, you don't, you don't think I can use you? <laughs> you want to bet? Let's get to work. Let me tell you about Esther. She has some strikes against her. First, let's take a look at where we are in history. Okay, uh, in history, what's happening right now, the Bible, where's my Bible? I'll borrow it up here. I lost it. 
That's what I get for using my iPad as a Bible. Um, the Bible is divided into two major sections. The last third of the Bible, we call it the New Testament, and it's primarily about the teachings of Jesus and his followers in the early church. That's the New Testament. Um, and the first, like, two-thirds of the Bible is called the Old Testament. And it's primarily about the nation of Israel, also called the Jews or the Hebrew nation. And so that's what the first, like, two-thirds of the Bible, it's all the stories. And that's where we find the book of Esther. And the nation of Israel is, is this roller coaster nation. There's times when they're super prominent. There's times when they're not prominent. There's times when they're in slavery. And in this particular time in history, they have been in exile in what was now Babylon but is now controlled by Persia. Okay? So they are not living in traditional Israel right now. They're not living near Jerusalem. They're not anywhere close to home. That's where we find Esther. And so she is basically kind of like a slave race. She's a woman without a country. And that is just strike one against Esther. To make her a likely person to be a major player in an important event in history, strike one. Esther's not a likely person. Secondly, Esther was a woman. And I'm all for empowering women and everybody having equal rights and all that stuff in the day we live in. It's great, but we all know that history hasn't always been that way. She, she's, she's a woman in the Far East, and I don't know, check your history and check even modern day, and women still don't have very good uh, placement in society. And so this, in her time period, is strike two against Esther. The time and period she's living in and the fact that she's a woman. And then thirdly, you might not jump right out at you, but Esther was an orphan. She didn't have a mom or dad. She was kind of an outcast. She has this really great cousin who's taking care of her. But in reality, she doesn't have a place to lay her head. She doesn't have a, a lineage to call her own. She's an orphan. And so just for these three things, you could probably think about a few more. She's not a very likely person. But in God's economy, she is perfectly placed. See, God doesn't work with the same things we work with. He can take someone completely broken and make them totally whole. He can take someone solely lost and make them completely found. And he can take someone like Esther and he can use her to change the course of world history. Because despite some seemingly unlikely positions that Esther found herself in, it turns out that God still has one strength left for her. I don't know if you caught it. Esther's, she's beautiful. Now, in our culture, we've got all these things and Dog and Photoshop and, and Dove has done a good job of telling uh, women that they're beautiful from the inside. And I, I, I agree with all that. In fact, God teaches us that our beauty should be found from within. And though it may seem superficial on one level, God says, look, you got one thing going for you, girl, and I'm going to use it. So she enters this beauty pageant for the king. All right, so as you read the story, you'll quickly see that as they enter the beauty pageant, I'm just calling it a beauty pageant. It wasn't literally like a beauty pageant. There were judges, and there wasn't like a theme song. I'm just calling it that because it's a movie, right? And in the course of this event, Esther actually does some things that aren't very God-honoring. Uh, I want to go and call those things out because sometimes we see people in the Bible, we're like, well, Solomon had hundreds of wives. Why can't I have hundreds of wives? You're like, well, that doesn't mean that was okay that he did that. David killed people, why can't I kill people? Well, no. That's pretty much everyone in the Bible who God uses is also a screw-up. Okay? So we're not going to take everything they do and say we should do everything. So this is a couple things that Esther does. The first thing that she does that, that isn't necessarily good, it says in chapter 2, verse 10, that Esther hid her nationality and her family background. Um, and, and basically, the Jews had a very strict code of, of ethics when it came to who you marry. Uh, and you should only marry somebody who's also a Jew. Why? Because in order to cross over into a different, uh, a different either racial group or nationality, you would also compromise the way that you worship God. Uh, that was very much part of the, the intermarrying system. And so the Jews were encouraged and, and instructed, and actually it was a law, that they needed to only marry people that also worship God. And so for her to kind of step into this relationship potentially with King Xerxes is, uh, you know, that was probably a strike, and she shouldn't have done that. The second thing is this, we're going to find out quickly, that Esther compromised 
physically. She actually compromised sexually uh, to do this. The, part of the, the requirements for winning this beauty pageant was that you had to go and be with the king um, in, in, in that way. And so, you know, it's like, I guess, your typical beauty pageant. You got, like, the swimsuit competition and the talent portion, and then they added another section. And so that's kind of how it happened. And so she did both of those things, and she shouldn't have, but she did. And here's the thing. God, God can use us no matter what, and he's the God of second chances. And so it's not that we should do the things we shouldn't do, but even if we do, God can still use us. One more thing. This is the last part. When we read Esther, chapter 2, verse 12, this is one last thing that she had to do to be prepared. She kind of made it through the preliminary rounds of like American Idol. Like they scour the whole nation, and they get like the top 5,000, and then they narrow it down, narrow it down, narrow it down, right? And so now uh, she's, she's made it into the top echelon, and in chapter 2, verse 12, it says, before a girl's turn came to go and to see King Jerxes, she had to compete, complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. 12 months. Six months with oil and myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. They take their time for stuff back in those days, I'm guessing. It's like just got a long time. So guys, like you might think your lady takes a while to get ready. Yeah, 12 months. 12 months. And she was fresh and clean. She was ready. Okay, and so 12 months. It's, it's 12 months for Anne Hathaway or Queen Esther. She wasn't queen. Just Esther. Waiting. Waiting and wondering. Is this worth it? Am I going to be chosen? So often it seems like that's how God works. Like seems things, things seem to fall into place fairly quickly, and then we just wait. We're just like, well, I kind of thought I was doing the right thing, God, but now it doesn't seem like anything's moving. It doesn't think like, seem like anything's shaking. And I don't know if you can make the direct co collect correlation with Esther's 12-month preparation to your waiting period, but I think it's definitely true. That God's time is not like our time. God doesn't hurry, but God is never late. Did you hear what I said? God is never in a hurry, but he is never late. <laughs> I hear you, man. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like, look, you hang on. And I'm going to take care of you, but it might not be when you want me to take care of you because i got a plan. I need to build you up or I need to break you down. I'm not in a hurry, but I will not be late. Maybe that's all you needed to hear this morning. But finally, the big day arrives, and she gets called in to be with the, with the king. And I'll cut to the chase. He considers her the most beautiful woman in Persia. And he's like, yes, you. I want you. And through all the things she might have been through up to this point, God has now positioned her perfectly, not only in Persia, but in world history to make a difference that I'll tell you about next week. <laughs> I want you to come back and catch part two of this story in the shadows because what God does is amazing. But before you go, I want to I give you something to take home, okay? Uh, first is this. Never, ever underestimate what God will use. This morning we, um, we had some stuff, like we walked in, it was like right around 7 o'clock, and the, like the fire alarm was going off. And we're like, oh no, we're going to get kicked out of the YMCA, we did something wrong. It turned out it wasn't that. There was like a, 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 an electrical surge thing that happened, and it caused the alarm to go off. And, and, and meanwhile, it caused a lot of other junk to happen, and electricity wasn't working. And when I was talking with the volunteers this morning, I made this comment, and I don't know what we'll see, if there will be fruit of this or not. But you know what? Uh, I was saying, you know what? 
Never underestimate what God will use. It might be the fact that the power went out this morning. I don't know, maybe you spent an extra two minutes talking to somebody that you never have spent time talking to because you couldn't plug in the extension cord and it wasn't working. Or maybe the guy who came to work on the lines today came today because I heard there was a church here and, well, I'm sure the YMCA called them because they want the YMCA fixed. But and while they're here, they go, church here, what? And maybe he shows up next week. I don't know. I don't know. But never underestimate what God can use because he can use anything. He can use your nation stuck in exile. He can use the fact that the only thing you have going for you is that you are attractive. He can use anything. He can use your brokenness. He can use, listen, he can use your your marriage that's hurt right now or your marriage that's failed. He can use your addiction that is bothering you right now. And if you can get through it, man, who knows what God can use to help change somebody else's life. He can use so many of these things. That's the first thing I want you to walk away with. The second thing is this. You never know what gifts God will use. And so sometimes you might look at some of the things that happen in the world. You think about people who have changed the world. They're world missionaries. There's someone like Billy Graham. Or maybe you look at someone like Aaron Collins who stands up here and plays guitar every week. And you're like, I don't have that skill set. Like, I can't do that. I can't get on stage and talk to people. Or I'm not the guy who wants to go and just start conversations with random people. That's not me. Or I'm not the woman who just loves to read and read and read and pour myself in, into all this stuff and learn and, and, and have answers to people's questions. Or I don't like to listen to people talk or whatever. Like, whatever you feel like is... I don't have that skill set. Never doubt God on what gifts he can use. It might be that the best gift you have is you can make these amazing chocolate chip cookies. Right? You got a neighbor who's sick and you're like, I'm going to make them some chocolate chip cookies. No big deal. I'm really good at it. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Take them over. Could change their life. Never, ever doubt the gifts that God can use. And never underestimate what he will use. Here's the deal. If you're available to God, he will use you. But sometimes it's this in the shadow stuff. We say, God is not here. God is not with me. I want to tell you this, man. If it really feels like God has not been there for you, or maybe you're like, I've actually tested him. I've asked him to do some stuff, and he didn't do it for you. I've got to encourage you with this thought, or really this question with this thought. Like, do you feel like God owes you something? God didn't prove himself to me, so he's not real. I don't, I don't want to be King Jerxes, but... I'll be honest, I don't think God owes me anything. He kind of created the world, gave me breath to breathe. I don't think he has to prove himself to me. I think he's made himself pretty dang evident in creation and the fact that he exists. Maybe you're not convinced of that, and maybe you think I'm a jerk for being so blunt about it, and, and I want you to know I'm patient. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to take the time to think about it. I want you to really study it and understand it, but my, my challenge for you is this. Is it possible that it seems like God is not working for you because you've totally written him off? God's a gentleman. He doesn't shove his way into places where he's not invited. So my encouragement for you this morning is also maybe invite him in a little bit. Say, God, look, I'm just going to stick around. I'm going to try this church thing one more time. (laughs) I I don't even know what this is all about. I I came today for the first time or I'm with my friend for the third time or whatever. I'm just going to try this thing out and see what it means. And God will start showing up. Because God's never late. He's always right on time. And sometimes he's working in the shadows. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for Esther and her story. Uh, a little bit of the story sounds more like a Jerry Springer show than a story from the Bible. And so uh, sometimes when we read those stories, we just kind of go, what can I learn from this? But as we un- unfold it and unpack it, I just pray that you teach us. Show us, um, show us what your word says and then help us to live by it. Help us to be like Esther, to be available in whatever way we can, and 
Help us to honor you in our decisions. We love you so much. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.